If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hi, I'm your inner dream monologue. And you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the third History Extra podcast for May 2012. Coming up in this week's episode, we have... And what is remarkable about Iceland and the sagas is the continuity between the past and present in terms of geography. That was Emily Lethbridge talking about Icelandic sagas. And at the head of the procession is a boat with a mechanical dragon on board. And that was Robert Blythe discussing Thames pageants. podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. There are more details of our latest issue and subscription deals on our website, which is historyextra.com. And as you may know, we're also available digitally these days. You can purchase our Kindle edition direct from the Amazon website, and our iPad edition is available from the Apple newsstand. To find out more information on the iPad edition, please visit historyextra.com forward slash iPad. As always, we can be found on facebook.com forward slash historyextra and twitter.com forward slash historyextra. Emily Lethbridge is working on medieval manuscripts at the Manuscripts Institute in Reykjavik in Iceland. She's an expert on the medieval Icelandic sagas and spent last year driving around Iceland in a converted military ambulance trying to place the events featured in the sagas on the ground today. She's writing a book about this, and the working title of that is Written in Stone, a Saga. And she also has a website, which is at sagasteads.blogspot.com. The magazine's editor, Dave Musgrove, spoke to Emily recently, and the first question he asked her was, what exactly is an Icelandic saga? The Icelandic sagas are prose narratives... Um, They were written down in Iceland in the 13th century, for the most part. 
There are about 30 or 40 of them. And they describe the settlement of Iceland in the late 9th century. And they describe the lives of these first settlers' descendants in the 10th and the 11th century. And settlement of Iceland in the 9th century, so there was no one there prior to that? There was no one there. There may have been uh, a few Irish hermits, um, but the evidence for that is is ambiguous, um, equivocal. So uh, it seems that Iceland was a virgin land and it was discovered by Vikings in the 860s. And um, people, Norwegians predominantly began to sail, sail there towards the end of the 9th century. And the sagas were written later than that and relate that story? The sagas were written some three, four hundred years later. Um, and so they, they describe the first, they describe these first settlers uh, arriving in Iceland and establishing farms and uh, they describe the, the first, the earliest Icelandic society. Okay, so let's talk about the, the content of the sagas for a minute because um, uh, so when, when I knew you were coming in, I, I went to my bookshelves and I got down a couple of saga books because I've, I've enjoyed reading them in the past and I think they're very fascinating sources and great stories. Um, so I, I, I got down my, my copy of uh, Evil Saga, is that how we pronounce it? Evil Saga. Evil Saga, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm close enough, um, which I've read before. Um, and the content of that is is the story of this sort of strange, brutal poet figure travelling around medieval Europe, um, getting involved in all sorts of scrapes. Um, and it's very hard for me as a, a, you know, a non-expert on this subject to kind of understand what's going on here. He's, he's a very curious hero. He's, 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 he does these, these, these strange, beautiful poems, and then he goes and puts an axe into someone's head without seemingly giving it a second thought so what's what's going on what 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 is the content of these stories and what are they trying to tell us well they some of these sagas are more biographical in focus like ale saga the main character in ale saga is ale but um it's not from start to finish about ale it's about him and the generations of his family that preceded him Mm. and the generations that uh, that followed him and so you start off in the ninth century with Eitl's ancestors um, the man the grandfather who sailed to Iceland and settled there from Norway in the first place uh, and then several chapters later Eitl, he is his he's introduced um, so they're kind of they are family chronicles um, and Eitl himself is He's a fascinating character, precisely because, as you say, he's not, you know, he's not a typical sort of conventional hero. He's a a dark character. Mm. Physically, he's very ugly, and he's kind of in a a very literary way contrasted directly in his saga with his blonder, much more popular, much more easygoing, and kind of outwardly successful brother. Mm. Um... But the saga, it follows... This, the geographical scope of the saga is also is huge. It follows Eitl not just in Iceland and around Iceland, but Eitl travelling abroad, sailing sailing north from Iceland, sailing um, to the British Isles and, and fighting and raiding and um, trading uh, around the British Isles. Um, and, he, and what's interesting about that is that he comes to uh, a recognisable point in British history. He comes in to the reign of Athelstan, the English king, who's the first king of England, who's fighting against the Scots and famously fights at the Battle of Brunan Burr. And, 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 and our Icelandic hero comes in and is sort of involved in that, or at least a bystander looks at it. Um, so it brings us into this, 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 this sort of known historic point. So that, that leads us to the key question, is that it, are these sagas history or are they just stories that people told to try and justify their claim to their land in Iceland? They, they are not history. Strictly speaking, um, the sagas are not historical documents. Um, so although Eid fights according to the saga in the Battle of Brunenburg, you can't take the saga as a, as a source, kind of documentary evidence for the Battle of Brunenburg. But they are, um, they are set in a very, you know, in a chronological, historical framework. Um, and so 
And so, in fact, really what, what they seem to be are their historical fiction, in a way. They're oh, kind of fictional. Historical fiction. I think so. I think that's quite a nice way of describing them. They are sort of worked up fictional fictional accounts of a historical of historical events and historical characters. And, you know, many of the figures in them can be demonstrated to have existed through other sources. Um, but the stories of these people's lives and the historical events which are presented um, you know they're, they're kind of recreations of of these pastimes and very much you know often elaborated um, dressed up yeah. for for entertainment value or other other reasons well, so that's a very nice way of thinking about it, historical fiction because it does bring in some clearly fantastical elements come into the stories don't they with, with, with um, mythical figures and, and such like which mm. um palpably don't exist or although were they were they thought to exist or, or was it always did they always know that this was you know they were bordering into the realms of fantasy well the sagas are full of all kinds of supernatural incidents which is one of one of you know adds enormously to their their color and entertainment value so you have fights with trolls or kind of wrestling matches with with living dead zombie characters um you have characters who who dream have prophetic dreams and all kinds of supernatural supernatural detail um in terms of the you know their veracity uh in some ways although the the supernatural content it varies from one saga to another so some sagas have a much kind of heavier supernatural um, dimension than others but in many ways just because there is a, a wrestling match with a troll or a, a kind of walking dead figure that doesn't necessarily detract from the kind of the veracity of that narrative and i think if you go to iceland and if you kind of spend time at dusk in a in a lava field or you know in some vast open open space you you begin to become much more kind of sensitive or aware to the possibility that there are other other creatures or other currents out there you can you can feel the inner troll explain maybe not the inner troll (laughs) but but it's certainly the landscape kind of leads in terms of feeding one's imagination it's it's incredibly powerful in that respect one of my favorite sagas which is uh greta saga saga about a man called gretir um an enormous character physically and in other respects, and he was outlawed and survived for 19 years on the run all around Iceland as an outlaw, um, the longest period of time that any outlaw in Iceland had managed to survive. Um, one of the climactic moments in his saga is when he wrestles uh, a malevolent walking dead vampire-style zombie um, who's been wreaking havoc uh, around a local area and Greta hears of this monster and decides that this is a challenge to which he can put his immense strength um, and so he turns up at this farmhouse waits for the waits for the monster to appear which he does um, and they kind of meet and have this epic wrestling match in which the, the wooden farmhouse around them is kind of pulled down and splinters around them and they fall out through the front door of the farmhouse outside it's dark and clouds have been racing across the sky and clouds the, the cloud clears from the moon and the moon shines down Greta is on his back with this monster underneath him who stares up at Greta with his piercing eyes lit by the moonlight um, and this monster then puts this terrible curse on Gretir, which kind of shapes the second half of the saga. And the, the second half of the saga is really about how Gretir um, becomes an outlaw and is kind of cursed to, to lead this doomed life. Um, so some words from this curse in, in Icelandic are as follows. This is Glaumur speaking. Þú hefur frægur orðið hér til af verkum þínum. 
en hérðan af mun fattu til þín sektir og víðfættli, en flest öll verk þín snúist þér til ógæfu og hamingjuleysis. Þú mund verða útlægur og hljótt jafnan úti að búa einn samt. Þá legg ég það á við þig að þessi augu séu þér jafnan fyrir sjónum sem ég ber eftir og mun þér erfitt þykja einum að vera og það mun þér til döðu draga. Okay, what do, I mean that, that, what that immediately mean? takes us into, into, into the character but what, what does that actually mean? Um, this is what Glaumur says. And Glaumur is the, the, the zombie is the monster, right. zombie, zombie, yep. You have shown great zeal in seeking me out, Gretir, and it will not be strange if you get but little luck from me. You have become famous so far from your deeds of strength, but henceforth outlawry and manslayings will be your lot, and most of your deeds will end in bad luck and lack of fortune. You will be made an outlaw and will be forced to live outdoors on your own, and this I lay on you that these eyes which I cast on you will always be before you and it will be torture for you to be alone and that will drag you to your death. Right, powerful stuff. It's pretty powerful stuff. So, so, so what's interesting about that though is um, what, what's interesting from your research mm. is that you've actually been to the place where that's supposed to have happened. I have. So tell us about that. This, uh, this great struggle is said to have taken place um, in a in a small valley in the north of Iceland, a valley called Forsailudalur, which means the Valley of Shadows. And um, the farm on which this monster uh, turned up and this wrestling match occurred is called Thorhatlastadur. And there's no farm there now, but there are the ruins of, of, of the farm that was abandoned a century or so ago. And it's possible to to travel to the place, stand on the spot, perhaps the very spot where Gretir fell out of the door of the farmhouse a thousand years ago and was locked in in combat with this monster, Glaumur, and cursed. And how can you work that out? How can you ascertain the location? Well, you can work this out because the sagas... um, they include an enormous amount of information uh, about places. Not so much descriptions of places, but they name, they describe the establishment of individual farms a thousand or so years ago, and they give the names of these farms. And what is remarkable about Iceland and the sagas is the continuity between the past and present in terms of geography. Um, And this means it's possible to pick up a saga and make a list of all of the places that are named in it, places where characters lived or where different events took place. And then you can pick up a map of Iceland and you can find these individual places, which are almost all still there. Um, In some cases, there are still working farms on these thousand-year-old sites. And uh, in that way, it's possible to, to sort of physically walk out the sagas or map them out on around the landscape today. What sort of insights do you get from trying to do that? What, what sort of understanding do you glean about the sagas and the stories and, and the sorts of things they're discussing by actually going and seeing where the events happened? Well, it was um, it was a fascinating experience and it really in in several ways it kind of changed how I think about the sagas as narratives both as literature but also from a sort of more literary historical perspective um firstly as literature reading these huge stories in these incredibly dramatic unimaginable landscapes was just a, a remarkable experience and these stories really kind of became alive and animated these enormous landscapes. So from a literary point of view, that was, you know, the stories just took on enormous resonance that they hadn't to that extent anyway when I'd just been reading them at home or in the library. And then in as far as kind of my theories and, and thoughts about the composition of these sagas is concerned and the transmission of these sagas, I began to um, just think hard about a much more landscape-based 
composition and transmission scenario. So being in these places made it much easier to kind of get a sense of, you know, why people might have wanted to set down these local stories and put the, these stories in writing and why they continued to copy them and also why they continued to tell them orally, pass these details down. And this is very much to do with, you know, living in kind of in the countryside. Place names are important. Place names are a means of navigating around an area and, you know, crucial if you're if you've got a flock of sheep up a mountain or something and, and someone has to go out and round them up and you can say, you know, head over to that rock which is called this and this rock is called, has this name because this event happened there. Um, so in terms of kind of day-to-day navigating around r- rural countryside, um, I began to see how these anecdotes and, and traditions kind of had a practical practical function as well. Um, and began to kind of began to see how how in many ways the landscape sort of held these stories, the landscape almost as another kind of parchment. So the, the, the sagas being written down on parchment um, in monasteries or in kind of centres of learning in the 13th century, but also very much living in the natural features of the landscape, in the rocks, by the rivers, in the mountainsides. Um, it was interesting also in terms of just thinking of the kind of dynamics of any single saga, seeing, visiting these places and seeing physically how the events in any one saga play out around the landscape. So seeing, for example, if you're on one farm and looking across the valley, what other farms are in your line of vision and how does that kind of affect the dynamics of, of a narrative, a narrative perhaps that describes a feud between families who live on, on you know, different opposite sides of a valley or, or something like that. How long does it take to get from one place to another? If a saga is describing a journey, someone goes from, from A to B on foot or on horseback, you know, in real terms, how long does that actually take? And what kind of might the, the, the conditions or the challenges in travelling have been? And so I got a really kind of, you know, a, a physical insight into into the detail, the logistics of of these narratives and the events that they describe. And and presumably you also met a lot of Icelanders living in these places or near these places where they happen. And you sort of alluded to the fact that that the Icelanders have a, a sort of quite a close relationship with these historical documents, much more so than we would have, say, with Bede's ecclesiastical history of the English-speaking people, something like that. Um, so how does that manifest itself? What, what, how, what, how, does that, how does that work? Well, that was another meeting, meeting modern Icelanders and t- talking to them about you know, their local saga was another way in which these sagas just absolutely came to life for me, seeing how people today in the 21st century still engage with characters in the sagas and events that they describe. Um, I kind of took a, you know, a real, well, maybe slightly haphazard, but I would just turn up at farms that are named in any one saga. I would knock on farmhouse doors and just see, see who came to the door and say, I'm working on this saga, which takes place around this area. This farm is a is a key place in the saga. Um, I collected an enormous amount of information about local place names and traditions associated with place names um, while I was doing that. Place names often that take f- perhaps the name of a character in a saga and you know, there's some association between a place name and a saga, but that place name might not be specifically mentioned in the saga, in the written text of the saga itself. So getting, getting a sense of you know, the whole... A, a much kind of more in time and space a much more complex um, sort of web of traditions associated with any any one saga um, and it was fascinating also to see how how people you know the extent to which people still know about these sagas kind of partly because they do have to read them in school but I think I, I think it's fair to say that uh, you know most Icelander will know 
much, much more about the sagas. And if they live outside of Reykjavik, if they live in a in a you know valley in the north or the south or the east, they'll know about the saga that's set in that local area. Much more familiar with these narratives than than most people in Britain would be with Chaucer, for example, or Bede or Beowulf. Uh, you know, so that was that was fascinating, and um, and hearing talking to people, particularly people in their seventies or eighties, who grew up just at the time when Iceland was beginning to to really kind of industrialize and you know the old traditions the old ways of life were coming to an end the old turf roofed stone and wooden farmhouses were being torn down and modern concrete farmhouses were being built but people in their 70s and 80s who grew up very much in a in a in a kind of family setup where in the winters people would all still sit together and listen to someone telling stories from the sagas, whether reading them aloud from a from a, an edition or just retelling you know, the essence of a, of that local st- story, that local saga. Um, so I caught, I think, almost you could describe it as the last sort of vestige of of this thousand year old tradition of of oral retelling and transmission of the sagas. Okay, just coming to it, how. Um, valuable are the sagas as a as a source for understanding Viking Age society because as we talked about earlier there's, this, there's some elements of it which are fantastical and other elements which it's hard to imagine a society as brutal as is played out in some of the sagas so do they do they help us understand life in the in the tenth eleventh century in Scandinavia and Northern Europe? Well, if they don't help us to understand life in Iceland or Scandinavia, Northern Europe in the the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. I think they certainly have something to say or they help us to understand uh, the world in which they were produced, the 13th century um, historical context of Iceland. And this was a time when when, uh, civil war was kind of tearing the, the country apart. Power by that stage had concentrated itself in the hands of some two, three, four leading families, where, whereas kind of political power was much more evenly distributed um, prior to that time. And so there is very much a, a sense of uh, a looking back to a, a kind of a, a past, a past time when the country as a whole, admittedly riven by feuds which are central to the sagas and political disagreements and and clashes between chieftains or or families but um, looking back at any rate to a a time when Iceland was independent and um, Iceland a time before Iceland had lost its its independence which happened in in the mid 13th century in the 1260s when they ceded to the Danish ceded to the Norwegian crown and, and lastly, so you've, mm. you've, you've studied all these sagas, you've looked at them in the original um, and, and, and presumably have a, a good idea about what's been said and you've travelled around Iceland looking at all the places. So two questions. Where's the best place to go to, to, to appreciate the sagas and which is your favourite saga? My favourite saga is, is this saga about this outlaw hero, Grettir. Um, partly because as a character he is... He's incredibly complex. He's uh, very ambiguous. He he has very unattractive sides to him, as well as his more positive qualities. And it's a, just a desperate, it's a desperate story about how, uh, because he's human, he he ultimately can't save himself. Um, so I would recommend you. I would I would suggest getting to Iceland and, and following, following Greta Saga. Greta saga trails but that is a it's more tricky because it does take you a bit more further afield than than any other saga which may be kind of more kind of geographically delimited um you could you could travel north from Reykjavik though and visit the farm on which Greta is said to have been born and the farm where in fact his decapitated head is said to 
be buried underneath a stone in a field next to next to the modern farmhouse. You could travel further north again uh, to a place county called Skagafjörður, where there is this unbelievably dramatic 180 meter high rock of an island in the middle of the Skagafjörður Bay, an island called Dranke, which was where Gretir. Um, retreated for the last three years of his life, kind of defensive stronghold, but where finally his enemies managed to gain access and and killed him, lopped off his head. Um, so you can sail out there and you can climb up onto the island and, and see the spot where he's said to have built his shelter and where he is said to have lost his life. Um, so that, that would be two places immediately that you could you could find very easily and two kind of central places in Greta Saga. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting... Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So that was Emily Lethbridge talking to Dave Musgrove. Don't forget to have a look at Emily's blog site, which is sagasteads.blogspot.com, for more on this. And now we have a short advert. Want to enjoy great historic days out? Membership to historic royal palaces allows free and unlimited entry to the Tower of London, Hampton Court Palace, the Banqueting House, Kensington Palace and Kew Palace. Discover the celebrations for Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee at Kensington. Also, create your own celebrations at Hampton Court over this Jubilee weekend. With exclusive member events and an array of new exhibitions on offer, 2012 promises to be the year to be a member. Prices start from just £43 a year. Visit hrp.org.uk or call 0844 482 to become a member of our historic royal family. Robert Blythe is co-curator of a new exhibition at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, which is called Royal River. Dave Musgrave caught up with him at the museum to find out more. 
You are co-curator of an exhibition here at the National Maritime Museum entitled Royal River. So first question is, how important has the Thames, that is the river we're referring to, been to the monarchy? The River Thames is hugely important to the monarchy, especially if you go back, say, to the mid-16th century onwards. Um, so if you begin with Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, the great river procession for Anne Boleyn's coronation, which leaves Greenwich and goes down to the Tower of London. You go into the Stuart period, you have 350 years ago Catherine of Braganza's great state entry into London, her aqua triumphalis again on the river down from Hampton Court to Whitehall. And the reason they use the river is the Thames is actually London's grandest street in this period. The streets of Tudor and Stuart London are dirty, mean and narrow, whereas the Thames is this great broad avenue which allows enormous numbers of people to watch these great spectacles on the river. Okay, so you're calling it Royal River because of it, because it's a, a processional way for the royals. Is that is that the main reason, or is there anything else that we should we should know about that? Yes, it is a great processional use, but of course the Thames is also used by the royal family in other ways as well, and indeed by the city too. So one of the great annual spectacles on the Thames was the Lord Mayor's procession, which was on the river from the mid-15th century through to the mid-19th century. This is the City of London demonstrating its loyalty to the Crown by processing from the city down to Westminster. But the river is also used by the royal family in different ways. You need to think of the Georgian River, Handel's water music, George I having this great concert on the Thames, not getting home until after two o'clock in the morning, listening to Handel's music over and over again, or the great royal fireworks displays held on the river as well, or the Thames simply used as an easy means of getting somewhere. So for example, Victoria and Albert, even in the mid-Victorian period, using the river simply to get around London. So uh, you, we sort of started with the Tudor period. Have we got much that happens before that in terms of in, in the medieval period? Was the river used as a, a, a royal roost tool? You've got little mentions of it in the medieval period. One of the earliest mentions, for example, of royal watermen is when King John goes by river to Runnymede to sign the Magna Carta. Mm-hmm. And there's mention there of watermen being used to get him to Runnymede. So you have this little thread that runs through the medieval period, but really under Henry VIII, the river takes on this much greater significance as this sort of grand ceremonial route, a a theatre, a stage on which he can really demonstrate his royal power. Okay, so we're talking, we're we're sat here in Greenwich at the moment, and and just over on our left there would have been uh, a royal palace, a Tudor royal palace. Absolutely, where of course Henry was born, and Elizabeth too. Um, so, obviously, a very appetite place to be discussing this. So, can you give us a sense of, of what a Tudor pageant might have been on the Thames? What, what would it have been like? Well, if we take, for example, the pageant for Anne Boleyn's coronation in 1533, Henry orders the city livery companies of London to attend him in this great procession to the Tower of London. The theme for this pageant is St George. This is after his divorce from Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn is his controversial new bride. So St George, the English patron saint, Henry, the English king, Anne, his new English wife. The procession leaves from Greenwich. Anne, who's visibly pregnant, is on her barge, dressed in white, attended by her nobles, and at the head of the procession is a boat with a mechanical dragon on board, twisting its legs about and breathing real fire, this dragon heads the procession. And we know that various livery companies attended. They would have had banners, shields, music, all on the river. And this procession goes up the Thames to the tower with enormous crowds on the side cheering along. Up the tower, Anne gets off and she is embraced in public by the king, and then the king then proceeds in his own water procession down to Westminster, whilst Anne goes through the city of London. So everything is designed to allow the maximum number of people to see this great spectacle, and to allow Henry to try and legitimise his new wife to the general public. 
Tell me about this mechanical dragon. What do we know about that then? Is, that, is, that, is there a documentary reference to us? Is there a pictorial reference? Sadly, there's no pictorial reference, which is really very frustrating indeed, because it would have been a great thing to get into the exhibition. Yeah. But we've got various written accounts of this dragon breathing fire. And each of these great processions, including the Lord Mayor's processions, often took a theme. So there would be a pageant acted out as part of the procession. So we know from other processions that um, you might have enormous papier-mâché whales sailing up into the centre of London as part of it. Or it might be one of the patron saints of the livery companies would become the theme. So we know of one where St Catherine, who's the patron saint of the haberdashers company, it forms the central part of that. So th these are things which are both colourful, loud, music, ordnance being fired off as well, but they've also got this quite serious, allegorical, classical connection often woven into the pageant as well. So a, a bizarre mix of something for everyone, you know, popular noise and colour for the crowd, but also perhaps this more high-minded, serious classical note for the intellectuals on the riverbank. Right. So would it, would it have been like a modern-day float where uh, people were like sort of competing to have the best boat? with the livery companies, you know, trying to, trying to outdo each other with, with great displays. Yes, there's a sort of friendly but vicious rivalry between the livery companies. And indeed... Actually, this is, you ought to say, what is a livery company? Perhaps? Well, a livery company is essentially a medieval trade guild. So the basic guilds within the city, like weavers or goldsmiths or ironmongers, eventually formed livery companies. Their freemen of the company allowed to wear a coat, a livery, hence the the name, and they become involved in the great Lord Mayor's processions, and indeed the livery companies still elect the Lord Mayor of the City of London to this day. So the friendly rivalry between these companies meant that often their barges got larger and larger, more heavily decorated, and each would try and outdo it with the colour of their flags or the quality of their musicians, or in some cases the speed at which their oarsmen could get them to Westminster, even though they're meant to follow a very rigorous order of precedence mm. with the merchant tailors and the skinners at sixes and sevens in that order, alternating, which may be where the phrase at sixes and sevens comes from. All right. And uh, uh, so, so was, the, was the Stuart period the sort of the apogee of these pageants for the, for, for the, for the royal family? Ab absolutely. The sort of Stuart period sees the sort of them reaching their pinnacle almost, the great aqua triumphalist of 1662 for Charles and Catherine of Braganza was enormous. Pepys records that there might have been some 10,000 vessels on the Thames, noting that he couldn't see the water for the number of vessels. Um, and John Evelyn was similarly um, impressed by the whole event. Pepys saw the aqua triumphalists from the shore because despite offering eight shillings he couldn't get a boat that day. Evelyn was on a boat and saw it from river level and you know, there were huge accounts of the sort of splendour of the affair and similar um, splendour for the coronation of James II with spectacular fireworks and another great parade on the river as well. So with 10,000 boats there must have been um there must have been some accidents. Have we got any records of anyone pitching in off a barge or a barge sinking or anything like that? Well, there are all sorts of tantalising clues to things that may have happened on board, particularly with the Lord Mayor's procession. Um, there's one ordinance issued to members of the Cloth Workers' Company not to drink so much wine while on the barge, so we can only imagine that things got a bit too boisterous. The Armourers' Company issued an order that members of their company shouldn't wear suits of armour while on the river, which does suggest that one of them came to a very sticky end having fallen overboard, presumably right to the bottom of the river. And then various things get lost overboard, so pieces of livery company silver or decoration that slip between the fingers and plunge to the bottom of the Thames. So, Presumably some of them are still there. And then, of course, there are great controversies about breaking the order of precedence between the city companies, particularly on the way back from Westminster when drinking had taken place and often the parade turned into something of a race. Right. 
So you mentioned earlier the fact that the Thames was used because it was um, better than the streets, but the streets are dirty and, and full of all rubbish and all sorts of things. But what was, what was the Thames like during this period? I mean, it must have been a fairly unhealthy body of water itself. Well, as the centuries go on, the Thames becomes more and more polluted. And by the beginning of the 19th century, with the huge expansion of London, the Thames itself has become something of an open sewer. And you see the interest of the livery companies in the procession beginning to ebb away. The barges have become enormous, requiring 24 plus oarsmen to operate them. And because they're becoming more expensive, the livery companies begin to abandon the use of their barges, also because the Thames is so unpleasant. So the last Lord Mayor's procession is in 1856 on the river, when only four companies took part. And the barges weren't rowed up the Thames, they were towed by a steam tug. So the whole thing had become rather tawdry. So in 1857, the parade returns to land, and it's been on the land ever since, despite the improvement in the river more recently. Right, I see. Because so, in the past, you know, all the grand houses used to have their, their, their river gates, didn't they? And, and, you know, and, and all the important people would have travelled by, by river. So is, is the mid-19th century when that starts to come to halt, or is it a bit earlier that, that people stop using the Thames as a, as a, as a route for, for really getting around London? If you're a nobleman, then you might begin to abandon the use of the river perhaps in the early 17th century, where carriages become much more popular as a means of getting round and the roads begin to improve. But for ordinary people, the river is still a very important means of communication. It's important to remember that before the middle of the 18th century, there's only one bridge across the Thames in London, London Bridge in the city. So to get from north to south, or even easily from east to west, you might use a wherry operated by a waterman, essentially a water taxi service. And that continues right into the 19th century until the expansion of bridge building begins to damage their trade. So the water, the water still remains an important route within London for a surprisingly long time. Okay. So obviously the relevance of this story today is that, that there's going to be another royal procession. So um, how, how, how similar is this procession going to be to previous historical examples? Well, it's similar in terms of the route. It's going downstream into the city of London. The Queen will get off near the Tower of London, which has been a royal stopping off point for good and ill in the past. Um, in terms of the number of vessels, it will certainly rival some of the earlier um, pageants that we've seen on the Thames. It will be different in one respect in that it will have a variety of vessels that would never have been seen before in previous royal pageants. So everything from rowboats to steamboats in this pageant. And of course it's taking inspiration from that great aqua triumphalist of 350 years ago. Have they taken advice from you on historical things that they ought to bear in mind? Yep, we've been involved with some of the planning for that and um, some of the images which are represented in the exhibition have been used for inspiration both for the scale of the event and for how vessels might be decorated to create that link with the past. Now presumably none of the livery barges that, that once plied the, the river survived. Did any of the 19th century barges survive in any form or are they all gone and, and, and lost, lost to posterity? Well, parts of the decoration of the barges have survived with the company and some of those can be seen in the exhibition. Some of the 19th century barges ended up being towed to Oxford where they were used for rowing barges. And indeed they attempted to get some barges to Cambridge as well, but unfortunately a Thames barge doesn't survive very well off the East Anglian coast and they all sank to the bottom of the North Sea. Um, what are the key royal landmarks on the Thames end? So we've got Greenwich here and we've got the Tower of London. What else would have been significant? Well, you've got to think that by the Tudor period, the court has essentially centred on the Thames. All of Henry VIII's great palaces are essentially within very easy reach of the Thames from Windsor and Hampton Court in the west, right the way down to Greenwich in the east. And some of the principal palaces of state, if you think of Westminster and Whitehall, are also on the river as well. And later, of course, you also have things like Richmond Palace 
and the Georgian Kew Palace, all within easy reach of the Thames. So for the royal family, you can easily connect between the two, um, east and west, these great series of palaces. Okay, finish off. What are the what are the things that one must not miss in your Royal River exhibition? What are the, what are the most exciting displays? Well, I should say everything is exciting, of course. But um, there are some very important key objects. Um, there's a wonderful Canaletto depiction of Lord Mayor's Day on the Thames, which has not been back in England since Canaletto painted it in 1752, and this essentially really does evoke the terrific drama and spectacle of these riverborne processions. We've also got of great historical interest the stern carvings from the Royal Charles, a ship which was captured by the Dutch on their raid on the Medway in 1667, and these haven't been back in Britain in 345 years. So there's an extraordinary mix of material which actually shows the diversity and richness of these great river pageants. That was Robert Blythe. You can read a feature by him about the Thames pageants in the May issue of BBC History magazine. The Royal River Exhibition is already open at the National Maritime Museum and it will be running until September. There is an entry fee for that exhibition. The Queen's Diamond Jubilee pageant on the Thames is taking place on the 3rd of June and if you want more details of that you can find it at thamesdiamondjubileepageant.org. Now while we're on the subject of the Jubilee, this is a reminder that tickets are still available for the third in our BBC History magazine Tower of London lecture series. This talk brings together two historians to discuss the reigns of the two Elizabeths, the Tudor Elizabeth I and the current Elizabeth II. Anna Whitelock and Kate Williams will be considering their lives and queenships. The event takes place on the 14th of June and go to historyextra.com forward slash tower lecture for more information. Well, that's about it for this episode. We shall return next week when we'll be talking about Thomas Beckett and meeting a veteran of the Battle of the Atlantic. In the meantime, keep an eye on our website historyextra.com for blogs, galleries, quizzes and much more. Plus, don't forget you can find our new Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and Apple Newsstand, respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. <laughs>